Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in chapter 3 today as we continue our study in the book of Romans. And as you're turning there, I wanted to, uh, uh, to, to, to just bring out the, uh, one of the obvious things that we see in our culture today. You know, in, in our day and age, in our society, and what, this is one of the things that we've been learning actually in, in some of our small group Bible study at, at the melting pot. But in our day and age, the, 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 the disdain for absolute truth is rampant. I mean, our culture, our society absolutely loathes absolutes. They don't like being told never. They don't like when somebody says always. They don't like someone who claims to have an absolute view of truth. Postmodernism is really the, 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 the outgrowth of this, a moral relativistic worldview. People, they, they just kind of want to stay in the middle. They don't like it when you say this is true and this is false, or this is always true and this is always false. They, 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 they shy away. Many people today in our culture shy away from absolute truth. Nowhere, perhaps, has this been more apparent than in recent years. In a very, very popular movie series called Star Wars, maybe Scott knows this quote, but go ahead and bring up the picture there, Joyce. First, we see, we see in, the, in the movie Star Wars, and here's one of the, the newer episodes. This is, the, this is episode three, right, Scott? Yes, episode three, all right. In episode three here, on the left-hand side, we have Anakin Skywalker, who is also called what, Scott? Good, Scott. You are right on track. All right. His, his Star Wars trivia knowledge is just amazing. Anakin Skywalker on the left is actually Darth Vader as, as a young boy. And then on the right, we have, we have who, John? John, Cole, uh, John Varela. I'm looking at you. Obi-Wan Kenobi on the right-hand side. Obi-Wan, you know. And, and they're fighting. Why are they fighting? It's, you know, it, it, because... Anakin has gone to the dark side of the force, hasn't he? And here's a quote that was happening during their fight. Take a look. Anakin says to Obi-Wan, If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. And Obi-Wan responds, Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Now, a Sith there, I should say. A Sith is one who's on the dark side of the Force. And so Obi-Wan responds to this absolute statement by Anakin Skywalker by saying only the one of the dark side speaks in absolutes. Really? Shows you the uh, perspective of George Lucas, doesn't it? See, because in our worldview... It's just the opposite. In our worldview as Christians, we say just the opposite of that. The, con- the title of my message today is this. We are absolutely guilty, all of us. But salvation is absolutely free for all of us. We are absolutely guilty. It is an absolute statement. The Bible says it. We're going to read it. And we are going to declare today that every single one of us are absolutely guilty before God Almighty. An absolute statement. 
But at the same time, Paul is going to bring out in Romans 3, not just the one absolute of guilt, but another absolute. The absolute freeness of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are absolutely... I like how that printed out there. (laughs) You like that? We are absolutely guilty. I don't know why it does that. But salvation is absolutely free. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. We're going to read it together. Before I get to this uh, verse 9, I want to say this. Paul is still primarily speaking to the Jews, his brethren. But the principles that we're going to read certainly, undeniably apply to all people. So let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. We're going to read to verse 24, and then we'll get into the text. Paul's shadow boxer says, What then? Are we better than they? And Paul responds, Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Zero in on verse 9 with me for a minute. Paul is, again, shadowboxing. He's speaking with uh, a pretend opponent. And his pretend opponent, a, 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 a fellow Jewish opponent who's not quite sure of what Paul's saying, says, What then, Paul, after all you've said, aren't we, the Jews, better than the Gentiles? That's what the Jews have been saying all along, and they reiterated here in verse 9. Aren't we, Paul, the Jews, the, the members of God's chosen people, Aren't we better than they, the pagan Gentiles? Paul says, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul's point here is very plain. It is very simple. It does not take a theologian to understand. It is written For every man and woman, no one person is better than another. No one person is better than another. Neither Jews nor Greeks. 
All are under sin. All are under sin. And that phrasing, under sin, Paul here seems to be, seems to be really indicating that, that sin has a power. Sin has a presence about it. One that holds people underneath its sway. All people are under the power of sin. All people have succumbed to it. All people commit sin. All people have been influenced by and are stuck in, in bondage to, enslaved to sin. How do we know this? How do we know this is so? I would argue experience alone tells us this is true. But of course, Paul doesn't appeal to experience here. He says, I'll just show you from multiple places in the Word of God. Notice verses 10 to 18. Let's go ahead and bring up verses 10 to 18 here. What we see in verses 10 to 18 is the longest, the longest set of Old Testament quotations by Paul in all of his writings. Interestingly, these quotations span some five different sections of the Psalms and Isaiah. Paul has been speaking about sin and judgment since Romans 1.18. And these quotations serve as the icing on the cake for Paul's doctrine of universal sinfulness of mankind. Paul's point here is to vividly put on display in dramatic fashion how wide and deep is the divide between a holy God and a sinful person. Let's read it together. It says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, none who seeks God, all turned aside, they've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As I said here, the longest quotation ever by Paul of an, of, of an Old Testament section there. Interestingly, it, it's all from different texts. Every little, every bit of these, some eight verses, nine verses, every bit of them is taken from different parts of the Psalms and Isaiah. Zero in on verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12 are taken from Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. And we'll, we'll look at where the other ones are taken from. And really the point here is not to turn back to Psalms, because Paul's really taking it in perfect context. But he's just saying, look, it's... The, the, the universality of sin is shown here, it's shown here, it's shown here, it's shown here, it's shown everywhere in the Old Testament. Now what is especially noteworthy as we look at verses 10 through 12, what is especially noteworthy in this section of Paul is the first adjective he uses to describe humanity. Don't miss it because it's the key to the rest of the whole text. He says, there is none righteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not only is this the first adjective Paul uses to describe mankind, but it is the statement 
that governs the rest of what he says in these eight, nine verses. Those of us who have been uh, paying attention in Romans, those of us who have been uh, attentive to the wording of Paul and how he's saying things, we know that righteousness is a primary concern of Paul in all of his writings, and especially in Romans. Paul knows that mankind desperately needs to become righteous before God if they are to be saved. Desperately needs righteousness. We desperately need righteousness if we're going to be saved. There's only one problem. We aren't righteous, Paul says. We aren't righteous. Paul and and David before him in the Psalms tells us that, that we lack understanding. We fail to see God. We all veer off God's path. We are unprofitable. We're, we're, we're useless. We do not do good. We are not righteous. I am not righteous. We are not righteous. The righteousness issue is what governs this text. We are not fit. Our righteousness isn't there to merit entrance into the kingdom of God. We don't have it. And we need it. Now some, uh, some people, they turn to Romans 3 and very, I would argue, unnecessarily, very unnecessarily, they press the matter at verse 12. They read the words in verse 12, uh, there is none who does good, no, not one. And they read these words and they unnecessarily press the matter uh, and contend that no unbeliever, I'll say this clearly, they contend that no unbeliever can perform good works. But that really is not Paul's point here. That's actually missing the point entirely. Paul is not eager to prove that unregenerate people never do anything good. He's not eager to prove that. His concern is that unbelievers realize that any good that they do still does not make them righteous before God. It still is lacking. It still isn't good enough, regardless of their understanding, regardless of how much they try to seek God. It still isn't good enough. Paul's words here echo the spirit of Isaiah's words. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah says this, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Isaiah's not denying the righteous acts. He's denying the value of the righteous acts. He's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter all the good that they do. It doesn't matter all the things that they try and do. All the humanitarian efforts that they put forth. All the goodness that they put forth. It doesn't matter. They're not good enough. Righteousness governs the whole of Romans 3. Paul's concern is not to prove that unregenerate people never do anything good. His concern is that unbelievers realize, come to grips with the recognition that all the good that they could do still is not good enough. 
No one in and of their own efforts is righteous. All of us are sinners. And despite our best efforts, we still fall short. Paul goes on to describe them further in verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Here we see quotations from Psalm 5.9 and Psalm 10.7. Throat, tongues, lips, mouth, sins of speech. Paul's discussing here sins of speech, things that come out of our mouth, make us so unworthy of entrance into God's kingdom. It makes us unrighteous. Jesus said, I say to you that for every idle word you speak, you will give account of it on the day of judgment. He said that in Matthew 12:36. For every idle word we may speak, we will give account for it on the day of judgment. We are not righteous. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Quoted from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. And also remnants of Psalm 36, verse 1. From the mouth, from the, from the sins of speech, now we turn to the feet, Paul says. And our unrighteousness becomes all the more apparent. The, 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 the life trail that we've tread upon, it's muddy and it's treacherous. We have not always walked peacefully, Paul says. At times we've been destructive, we've been vindictive, we've gone out of our way to bring misery to another person. I've done that. We've all done that. We've gone out of our way to hurt another. Not having any fear of God. Not having any fear that God was watching our actions. Sins of, of violence and sins of malevolence. In all of this, Paul says, we are not righteous. We're not good enough. We're guilty. And it is this admission of guilt. It, it, is, the, it, it is when you come to realize after reading Romans 3, not that you never do anything good. That's not the point. That's not what Paul's driving at. He doesn't want you to read it and say, I don't do anything good. He wants you to read it and to say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. How do we know this? It's what he says in verse 19. Notice what he says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, in the first century, this is something I learned this week. I did not know this, and I was really excited to learn this. Uh, a little history lesson here. In the first century, in, co- in, the, in the courts, the, the court's proceedings would very much be in public. You know, they'd be open for all to watch. And the Jews would judge each other, and at times they would go to the Romans and they would judge. But it's interesting, in the first century, whenever the defendant was done, whenever the defendant was completely finished with defending his case and saying, no, I did not do that, I should be innocent, and here are the reasons why I should be innocent, 
when the defendant was done, he would indicate his completion, the completion of his defense, by putting his hand over his mouth. First century Palestine, they would put the hand over the mouth to signal to the judge and to all who were there, I'm done giving a defense. I'm done giving my defense. My mouth is stopped. Once the mouth had been covered, the judge would then proceed to render the verdict. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. God's law was given that every man, woman, and child might take their hand and upon reading the law, take that hand and put it over their mouth. God's law, properly read and understood, allows no person even the right to speak in their defense. For every one of us has broken God's law and the only proper thing to do is to cover our mouths and await the verdict of God. It's interesting too, the scholar who was bringing this out mentioned that when Jesus was struck on the mouth, and when Paul was struck on the mouth, the reason the Romans did that is by way of telling him, you should stop defending yourself. You should stop your defense. You should stop what you're saying because we think you're guilty. Every mouth be stopped. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul says, look, it's it's foolish to remove your hand from your mouth and attempt to defend yourself before God based on the deeds of the law. It's foolish to take your hand from your mouth and to say, but wait a minute, I've done all these good things. No one is justified. No one is made righteous by works of the law. The more we try to perfectly do the law, the more we realize just how far we fall short. And that is exactly what Paul means when he says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The more we try to perfectly do the law, the more we realize we fall short. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Doug Moo mentions this to that uh, quote in verse, to that verse 20 there. He says this, The law presents people with the demand of God. In our constant failure to attain the goal of that demand, we recognize ourselves to be sinners and justly condemned for our failures. We're not righteous. We're guilty. And all our best efforts to seek God and to follow His law fall short. All our best efforts fall short. And so we wonder, as Paul's audience wonder, so we wonder too, were we hearing this for the first time, is there any hope 
Is there any hope for a good verdict at the judgment of God? Is there any hope for a pardon before Almighty God in light of this devastating, absolute truth? It is here that we come to one of the greatest passages in all of the Scriptures. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said that Romans 3.21 to about verse 26, he said, this is the chief point. It is the very central place of Romans. It is the very central place of the whole Bible. This was Martin Luther's highest text. Verse 21. But now, but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. But now, something has changed. Paul is changing his tone. Paul is moving... We've been studying since chapter 118 all about sin and wrath and judgment, and guilt, and condemnation. That's all we've been studying for the last two chapters. And here Paul uses two little words to indicate, I've got something great to tell you. I know we've been talking about some tough stuff lately, but now I've got something great to tell you. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Since Romans 1.18 and following, Paul informed us that the wrath of God was being revealed. Turn there. Romans 1.18. Turn there real quick. Flip back. It's not on your screen. <clears throat> Romans 1.18. This is what began our whole conversation on sin and death and wrath and condemnation. For the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. In 118. Now turn back to 321. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Paul's saying this so strategically here. You should underline those two verses. You should link them together. They serve as huge transition points in the epistle to the Romans. In 118, we were told that the wrath of God is coming. Here, in Romans 3.21, we are told that the righteousness of God is being revealed. In Romans 1.18 and following, we were told that sinners are under the judgment of God. But now, in Romans 3.21 and following, Paul says that sinners have new hope in Jesus Christ. In Romans 1.18, Paul says that the only way, the only way we can make things right with God was to be perfectly righteous. And all those who heard him said, how can that be? And now, beginning in Romans 3.21, Paul says, that perfect righteousness I was telling you about, it's here in Christ. It's readily available to all in Christ. How is that righteousness received? Verse 22 even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. 
I can't say it any plainer than that. You don't need to elaborate on that, really. We are made right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are declared just. We are given a pardon. All of the things we've been talking about, sin and death and condemnation and guilt, all of that is eliminated when we believe in Jesus. We're declared right. We're declared just. The moment we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Paul says this promise is to all and it's on all who believe. That is to say, God's righteousness is given to all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's freely given to them that they receive it by faith. And God's righteousness is also given on us. His righteousness covers us. And on the last day, our entrance into the kingdom of God will not be based on our own merits, but entirely on the merit and the righteousness of Jesus Christ who covers us. You know, we were up in the mountains. Uh, we went up to Big Bear uh, Sunday after church, last Sunday. Crazy, I know. We, we drove up there. I knew the storm was coming. So I said, honey, let's get up there fast. So we got in the car and we zoomed up to Big Bear and, uh, and, and got a chance to, to just spend uh, a night or two there. Well, we were going to spend two nights, but we knew the storm was coming. And uh, just kind of a quick story off to the side. We, on the day... Uh, on Monday, we were going to stay two nights, and so after the first night, the power went out. And we thought, oh, with power goes heat. That's interesting. So we waited it out for an hour, and the temperature was dropping, and, uh, and finally the power came back on. We were like, okay, good. You know, it's snowing pretty good now. And an uh, hour later, power goes out again. We were like, okay. It's about 4 o'clock, 4.30 now. Temperature's dropping a degree every 15 minutes. We had to go home. But it's a good thing we did, because the next day they got four feet of snow. So anyway, that's besides the point. When we were up there, we, we were so concerned about our son uh, not getting cold. And it's funny how he got sick after that trip. Anyway, we were so concerned with Bennett not getting cold, and so we just bundled him up, and we had gloves on, and jackets, and sweaters, and hoods, and hats, and boots, and pants, and my son looked like, you know, the Pillsbury Doughboy. You know, he couldn't even walk by the time we let him out to go pick up snow. You know, he tried to do a snow angel and he went like this. It was, it was pathetic, right? Our son was totally covered. We, had, we covered every single inch of his body in these snow clothes so that he could stay warm and not be exposed to the harsh elements. Jesus has done that for you. Jesus has wrapped you. You who have believed. He has wrapped you in His righteousness. He has covered you in His blood. He has made sure that nothing in you is exposed to the harsh elements of sin and death. He has ensured by His death and resurrection and by your faith in Him, He has ensured that you are perfectly and entirely 
covered in His righteousness. So that when God looks upon you on the last day, He sees Christ. And He doesn't see the awful things that we've done. He's covered you. You're not exposed. You're not wide open to the elements. You are protected in Christ. Back at the start of this message, the Israelites were reminding Paul, Hey Paul, we're, we're God's chosen. We're Jews. Sons and daughters of Abraham. And so, aren't we better than the rest of humanity? And Paul would have none of it. He says, no, not at all. You're not better than anyone. No person is better. Neither Jews nor Greeks. No one. No one is better. All is under sin. Well, here at the end of verse 22 and 23, Paul reiterates that one last time. Take a look. Romans 3, as we continue in verse 22. Paul says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and being justified freely by His grace through the, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Your ethnicity isn't good enough, Paul says. Your privileged status isn't good enough. Neither your wealth, nor your wisdom, nor your humanitarianism, nor your righteousness. The only way you can be good enough is to be freely justified by God's grace through the redemption in Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, given freely, not of works lest anyone should boast. Jesus said at the end of Revelation, He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. We'll discuss that concept of redemption next week. But for now, I wanted to show again just, just the, the list the list of the absolutes we see here. Notice, notice the, the list of absolutes, left and right. We see, number one, we see no one has an advantage with God. An absolute statement. No one has an advantage. Secondly, everyone, all of us, are under the power of sin. Thirdly, no one is righteous. No, not one. That, that, that phrase governs the entirety of Romans 3 right there. No one is good enough. No one is righteous to warrant entrance into God's kingdom. Every mouth, every mouth is stopped when they look upon God's law. Every mouth is stopped whether or not we cover it. It is stopped. No one can be justified by works of the law. No one can do enough so that God would show favor upon them. And lastly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God some six absolute statements. Maybe I missed one. All of this meaning what? What does it mean? It means this. We're absolutely guilty. We are absolutely guilty. We have no defense. 
And these negative absolutes, they look terrifying and they look ominous and they look, they look like they cannot be overcome, but someone overcomes it. What overcomes it? This is what overcomes it. All, everyone, every single person, everyone is freely offered the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. All those negative absolutes are thrown out the window in light of this one positive and glorious affirmation of Jesus Christ. Believe in Me and you will have everlasting life, Jesus says. This is a story most of us know. It's a, it's a, it's a lesson. It's a, it's a part of Scripture. We go, I've heard this before. But realize that what Jesus offers there eliminates all the absolutes of sin and death and guilt and condemnation. His absolute overrides all of it. And so while, friends, while I said at the start of this message, while we are absolutely guilty, so also salvation in Christ is absolutely free. And it overcomes all our sin and all our guilt. I urge you this day, if you've never done it before, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for timeless truth. We thank You for lessons on themes and and doctrines that we know all so well. And yet so often, Lord, we just... Man, we take it for granted. We don't realize just how much in Christ... You have eliminated the absolutes of sin and death and condemnation. I thank You, God, that You cover us in Your righteousness. I thank You that Christ's righteousness is what You look at when You consider us on the last day. And I pray, God, that no one here would walk out of this room not having received the righteousness of Christ by faith in Jesus. That no one would walk out of here not having been declared just, declared right with You by believing in Jesus as their Savior. God, help us all to seek Your face, to seek the righteousness of Your Son, and to live in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.